thank you so much, Whit, for being with me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my guest. How are you? You're in Orlando like me. How are you today? Yeah. Uh, great. And I'm honored to, to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for the invitation. I'm kind of new uh, to these uh, formats, but I'm always interested in trying something new. So I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. Thank you so much, Wit. And podcasts are great. Pretty simple one-on-one -on -one interview and uh, being original. And I really appreciate your time here today. When you think about relationship building in a team environment, or when you think about relationship building, the definition, how would you define it in your own words? That's a great question. I, I, I enjoy this topic. Um, I think relationship building in a team environment has to start with listening and active listening. Um, listening is not a passive activity. It's an active activity. You have to be invested in, in doing it and determining what the people around you are looking for, determining what they need, how can you best meet their needs? Um, can you deliver? Is it even within the realm of possibility for you to deliver what they are looking for? I think that's where it starts. And then once someone is convinced that, that you're listening to them, they'll start to trust you. And I think any coach or teacher would tell you that the, the basis of relationship building has to be trust in a professional sense. Um, but it starts with keeping your eyes and ears open and paying attention to what the people around you are expecting, what they need to get done, what they're trying to get done. Um, and it takes work. Like I said, you can't, that's not, that's not a passive uh, activity. That, that takes effort and attention. And when you talk about listening and trust, they go hand in hand. And, you know, when you started your career, I remember growing up watching you call uh, games, or really you were a reporter for Sunshine Network covering the Orlando Magic. Uh, was that your first uh, exposure to the industry? And really, how has your career evolved when it comes to relationship building? Were you ever considered to be a mentor to others or people mentor to you, yours or to you rather? Love to know more. Yes, all the way around. So I started uh, working in college radio in Ithaca, New York. Um, I went to Cornell and the student radio station was not really a student radio station. It was off campus. It was independently owned and operated. It was a nonprofit corporation made up of Cornell students that ran the radio station. And we, it was a business. We had to sell ads to pay the bills. And um, there were no teachers, no administrators looking over our shoulder. It was the real world. And um, you learn pretty fast how to build relationships. And we're all freshmen and sophomores in college. And we're all trying to get through school and run this business basically. And there were a lot of fights and there were a lot of arguments and there were a lot of great friendships. I mean, I'm, I'm very close friends with a lot of people from WVBR still today, 30 plus years out of school. Um, because you're, you know, you're there at five o'clock in the morning and two o'clock in the morning and um, you got to learn how to, how to work together. Um, I had mentors in the form of older students that were there training me and teaching me how to do radio. And then I would teach people that came in after me. I was the sports training director for a year and I was the sports director for a year. So I would literally have to go out and recruit students to come learn how to do radio. Um, happy to say the station's still on the air. They still are in, in college town in Ithaca and they're doing quite well. Um, and that was really where I got started. And then along the way I got, Real lucky, you mentioned Sunshine Network, and, and one of my jobs was to uh, act as a pregame, sideline, postgame reporter for Orlando Magic broadcasts. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't 
pick out David Steele, who is their play-by-play announcer, who's been there since day one. He was their original radio play-by-play announcer. He's done television for a number of years. And David was absolutely a role model in terms of what we were talking about, how he treated people, how he spoke to people, how he prepared. Um, you know, I, I stole a lot from him. And, and in our business, you know, if you're stealing from somebody else, you're stealing twice because they took it from somebody else before you did. So a lot about how I prepare for games or tournaments, um, I kind of gleaned by watching David, you know, sort of over his shoulder. Maybe I'm not sure he would even know that. But um, so, yes, I've been very lucky to have people that I looked up to and then hopefully try to pass something on to somebody who comes after me. Well, David, I haven't had the privilege of meeting him yet, but he's been the voice for the magic for such a long time. And, you know, yeah. he's had some uh, people, you know, call games beside him and they've changed over the years, uh, but he's always been a constant and he's been, he's been great. And I hope to have the wonderful opportunity to meet him. And obviously he's had a, profound impact on your life, which is wonderful to hear. And I'm glad that you mentioned him because he seems just from afar, he seems like a person who's approachable, relatable, wants to teach others. And that, that's great. And how did you get your uh, position at ESPN? Is it something that you happened to come across or did somebody recommend you and talk about your time in, in Bristol? This is a good story. So actually going back to this radio station in Ithaca, um, I was a sophomore or a junior in college. And there was another young man there who was one year younger than me, who was a DJ. He was on in the music department. And I would chat with him in the hallways and kind of realize this kid was a huge sports fan. He was from the New York City area and knew as much about sports as I did. I need to recruit this guy to come work for me in addition to doing his DJ duties. So he did, I talked him into it. I graduated, he became the sports director after I graduated. He went on to work for uh, the fan radio station in New York City and eventually got a job at ESPN. Um, His name is Dan Weinberg. We're still in touch to this day. He's now a vice president at CBS Sports. Um, I like to take credit for changing the course of his career, but um, he also changed the course of mine because when he got hired at ESPN as a production assistant, he was my contact in Bristol. He was kind of the guy that I would run things by. He told me who to send the tapes to. He told me who to call, who to bug, you know, with my resume, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of was like my spy inside the building. Um, So when ESPN News launched in 1996, they hired a bunch of um, inexpensive (laughs) uh, talent anchors to come to Bristol to man this new 24 hour uh, network. And I was sort of part of the second wave of hires. I was in Orlando. I was working for the Orlando Magic at the time in their front office um, as a television producer. But I had done enough on-camera work to put together a resume and a tape. And uh, that got me hired in Bristol. Um, Was there for six and a half years, uh, mostly on ESPN News, but also ESPN2, some of the specialty shows. I did the occasional sports center, not uh, not to the level of, you know, I was working next to, Dan Patrick and, and Rich Eisen and Stuart Scott. And I wasn't quite that team. I was like the junior varsity, you know, <laughs> level for six and a half, seven years. And um, I did a lot of cool things. I, did, I hosted an auto racing show on the weekends, got to go to the Indy 500 several times, got to go to Daytona several times, which was cool. Um, but it was a, a real harsh learning curve. I mean, I got there, I was 25 when they hired me and had never really been a full-time anchor. What I had done had been sort of 
on the side for my regular job and uh, had to learn quickly. You know, luckily it was, um, it was a situation where we were working so many hours, working such long shifts, you kind of had to get better at it. You, you had so many reps, sure. you know, the, the 10,000 hour rule. You had so many reps at it, it was either sink or swim. You're either going to get better or they weren't going to renew your contract. And um, I hope I got better. I got a little bit better, but it was a lot of it was a lot of work. It was a fun time, but a lot of work over those years. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned Stuart Scott, and he actually had a brief stint in Orlando uh, before he, did. he got to ESPN. Is that a conversation you had with him? I mean, did he know? Oh, that yeah. 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 His producer was uh, Gus Ramsey, who is in Orlando and is the director of the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting at Full Sail University. Um, and Gus and I have stayed in touch. And Gus was also a Channel 2 uh, WESH graduate, as Stu was. Um, yeah, but we, we did cross paths a few times um, and talked about Orlando. And he still had some friends uh, back in Orlando, as I did. So that was kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And I remember I reached out to Gus Ramsey just to learn more about Dan Patrick's broadcasting school. I think that's great that it's a part of Full Sail University. And um, yeah. I, I think that's really remarkable. I mean, when you were at ESPN, did you feel that you could identify with some of the mentors there? I mean, what type of conversations were you having? I mean, were there people that took you under their wing, so to speak? There were a few that, um, yes, were helpful. When, when they hired me, they, they told me flat out, you know, you're the least experienced anchor we've ever hired. And, and you were getting this position because you can write, because your writing ability is really good. We can teach you the television, the presentation part of it. We can't teach writing. And that's how they hired guys like Keith Olbermann, who was a brilliant script writer. Dan was a great writer. You know, they all wrote their own stuff. And I guess where I sort of had mentor mentorship, if you will, was on the presentation side of it. And people like uh, Norby Williamson, who's still there, and Vince Doria, and um, some of the other, they, they bring in consultants from time to time, kind of to help me learn the camera part of it, you know, the presence, right. the presentation part of it. Because sure. I, I didn't, coming from a radio background, I had no hesitation writing. I knew how to write scripts for myself. I was very good at that and very quick. Um, but the this part, I had to sort of learn how to do. And, and a lot of that was just by watching the people around me that had more experience than I did by watching Keith and Dan and Stu and Rich and, you know, Kenny Maine and these guys who were just brilliant at it and, um, and so natural at it. Um, but again, that's, that kind of goes back to just listening, just pay attention, keep your eyes and ears open and just pay attention to people around you. And if something's working, ask yourself, why is it working? What are they doing that, that makes that good? And, um, and steal it. <laughs> as we all do, you know, in our industry. When you made the natural progression to the SEC network, and then you were at Fox Sports, Westwood One, talk about those uh, stops along the way. Was your time at ESPN what you thought it would be? Did you think you were going to be there longer? Or were you like, you know, I'm ready for a change and I want to go to a, a new place? Yes, I was ready for a change. I didn't expect to leave when I left. Um, it was my choice. And it was because I was contacted by Fox Sports Florida, which Fox Sports Florida and the old Sunshine Network, two different channels under one roof uh, at the time based in Orlando. And they wanted me to come home and be a studio host as well as a play-by-play -play announcer, which is something that ESPN probably wouldn't be able to afford me. Um, and it was a chance to move back to Florida. And I'm a native, I'm a local, my parents still live here. That was a no brainer. So that was just, you know, that was just time to go. Um, 
no offense to the fine people of New England, but I couldn't stand the weather. I had a really hard time with those winters. And so, when you, um, I want to hear your story, but when you were at Cornell, were you out of state coming? <laughs> speaking from of winters, yeah. Yeah, were you out of state coming from Florida? Then you went to Cornell and then you moved yeah. back home? I moved back as fast as I could. That was kind of the running joke. Yeah, I graduated from Cornell in 1993. Mm -hmm. And my first opportunity out of college was an internship with the Orlando Magic in their front office for the 93-94 basketball season. So I moved back in with my parents right away, um, did the internship, and then they hired me full time, which is another lesson I'm sure you hear from a lot of people is, you know, internships work, but there's, there's a reason why they still exist. Um, they, they hired me full time. And it was from there that I went to ESPN and then you Six came home. and a half years in Connecticut, went back home again. Said, yeah, it's still cold up here, went back home again. Um, and we've been here ever since. So, you know, um, it was nice to have, we have two kids. One is now 22 and one is 18. And they both essentially, they're both born in Connecticut, but grew up here. And it's a, as you know, nice place to grow up, Central Florida. Yes, absolutely. And so you were happy that when you moved back to Florida, you got to, you know, be a part of the SEC network. You got to then work um, at Fox Sports and then Westwood One. Yeah. So talk to me about those experiences. Yeah, the, the SEC network was a syndicated package of college basketball games. Um, it was not its own standalone channel yet. It is now, but it wasn't then. Sure. And that involved me flying from Orlando to Charlotte every weekend uh, to host their basketball shows, pre and, and you know halftime, et cetera. Uh, great experience. Loved it. Um, but eventually, uh, the Golf Channel was sort of the next big thing. And, and the right. Golf Channel was a full-time opportunity as opposed to a freelance opportunity or just a basketball season opportunity. And, um, you know, when that popped up, it kind of changed the course of my career. I, I went from um, doing a lot of basketball, baseball, football-related programming to just doing golf, which... Um, was kind of a hard right turn, but I, I, I love the game. I grew up here, I grew up in the game and had kind of had a long um, hope of someday maybe doing something for Golf Channel. So when they came around and that's actually what led me to Westwood One. So being in the golf industry um, allowed me to meet a whole bunch of people in, in terms of golf coverage. Uh, Westwood One for many years had the contract to broadcast the masters on radio and needed uh, an interviewer. Um, and I had met through mutual friends, got introduced to them. And so, you know, I spent, geez, all 10 years, I think, going to Augusta uh, every spring to do interviews with players for the radio broadcast, which was a blast. Um, so that worked out quite nicely. Being back here actually kind of led to a, a lot of little things like that. So I'm, I'm very happy to be back in Florida. And you've been spending, you know, time. I mean, you were at the Golf Channel, you know, did freelancing at PGA Tour. Yep. on the PGA Tour, and now you've been with NBC Sports Group for a little over two years now. So did you always love golf, or you just naturally, your career just headed there, and you just started to pick up, pick up on the sport, or did you already have a working knowledge of golf already? I had a pretty good working knowledge already. I played my entire life. My father is an avid player. Um, didn't play on my high school team or anything like that. I was a recreational player, but I understood it. Uh, well enough. And then, you know, when Golf Channel um, was essentially uh, merged with NBC Sports. So the job hasn't changed, although the, the logo has changed. My job has remained pretty much the same for 12 years that I've been there. Um, and that's, you know, going into the studio and hosting studio shows when necessary and then going on the road and, and hosting tournaments 
uh, from, you know, the 18th tower. And um, I, I, I like travel. I don't mind travel. So that's an essential part of, of doing what I do is, is you do have to be on the road quite a bit. Um, but I like seeing different places. I like sort of discovering the new courses and new cities and uh, get to meet a lot of people. It's kind of a traveling family. You see a lot of the same people in the compound. So it's kind of cool to reconnect, you know, while you're out. Um, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun for these 12 plus years. Well, that's great that you mentioned all that. You mentioned traveling family, being on the road a lot, you know, relationship building. I'm sure a lot of different examples of relationship building, yeah. you know, talk to me about some of the people that you met and whom had a big impact, you know, as you got through your um, travels. Uh, there's been a number. I've had a number of um, analysts that I've been able to sit next to and kind of observe, you know, Lanny Watkins, who's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, Nick Faldo, also um, six-time major champion, um, you know, uh, and then some players that maybe aren't as well known, but have made very good, very successful careers for themselves as broadcasters, which is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. Sure. Um, Aaron Oberholzer is, is very good at his job and um, Phil Blackmar and, uh, you know, Craig Perks, who's a former players champion, um, have all sort of forged careers for themselves as former athletes, which I think is really admirable. I can't imagine playing golf for a living. And I, I would imagine that at some point they would think, uh, they couldn't imagine broadcasting golf for a living yet here we are. Um, and I, I uh, definitely have learned a lot from watching these guys kind of get out of their comfort zone a little bit, you know, you have, and there's, there's lots of former athletes that try it and find out a, it's a lot harder than they thought it was and B they're not very good at it. So the guys that can, that have stuck in, in this business, um, I think are really admirable and, and I've been lucky to, to sit next to a whole bunch of those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I worked at ESPN, I worked alongside Scott Van Pelt because he filled in uh, as host for Cuffball Live. But Scott yeah. is a big, you know, golf enthusiast. And I don't know if you've ever crossed paths with, with him being that he covers golf. We almost literally crossed paths. We, we joke at times that we were traded for each other because he actually left Golf Channel and went to ESPN almost exactly the same time that I left uh, ESPN to come back to Orlando, or maybe it was me leaving Fox Sports Florida to go to Golf Channel. But yeah, we, we passed like two ships. Um, but I, I do see him on the road at times, you know, at, at major events. And I mean, another great story about a guy like uh, Scott, you know, building relationships. I mean, I think he started like in the mailroom at Golf Channel. Like he was at the absolute, you know, bottom rung. Right. Wasn't originally on the air, you know, and, and worked his way in front of the camera. and and now worked his way to a, a, a prime solo slot on SportsCenter on ESPN, which is no trivial matter. So that's right. um, a great relationship, a great example of building relationships through the years uh, and, and, um, and advancing as a result of it. You know, and with ESPN, you know, having a presence in Orlando with Disney Wild World Sports, have you ever thought of ever working at ESPN again or doing anything with Disney or World of Sports? Or are you really happy where you are with, with the golf channel? I would love to work. Uh, I'd work for ESPN again in a heartbeat. They treated me extremely well. Um, you know, I've had some sort of brief conversations with them about doing some freelance work. Um, you know, the, the pandemic has really altered our business model dramatically. I mean, look at us doing this. This is, this is how a lot of sports are called on TV sure. now. You've got announcers that are sitting in their office with a camera and, and monitors and they're not traveling because it's, you know, 
right. Anyway, point being, it's 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 um, a little tougher to kind of make those contacts these days. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, I'd, I'd gladly do events for them again. They've um, their sports television footprint in Orlando is a little bit smaller than it used to be. I think there was a time when they planned on that wide world of sports complex to be like a real busy working studio environment. That's again probably pandemic related, been tampered down a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be a, an independent contractor, you know, uh, by the time um, this summer rolls around. So I'm definitely, I would love to work for him again. Yeah. And you mentioned having lived in, well, you had traveled to Charlotte. I used to live in Charlotte, but you had mentioned that you would fly up to Charlotte and I know it mm -hmm. wasn't ESPN, but Speaking of ESPN, I know that ESPN has a big installation in Charlotte outside of Bristol and on the East Coast. And I know that they have, you know, part of the eruption that was based out of yeah. DC, that show. Well, and th that's where I was going. When I was doing the SEC network stuff, that's where I was going was to that facility in Charlotte where they oh, had, really? yeah, uh, where that's, that was the original home of ESPNU, if I'm not mistaken, was out of yeah. that Charlotte facility. Mm -hmm. um, and it was home of ESPN's remote productions uh, arm. Um, and uh, I think now it's where they have all their bowl game headquarters are in Charlotte. But yeah, that's that facility is where I was going, as a matter of fact. Nice. Yeah, I've been there. Very nice facility. And they've modernized it. And yeah, that, that's 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 great. When you talk about your family and the support system of your family and, you know, you mentioned traveling a lot and a lot of mm -hmm. broadcasters do reporters, anchors, you know, if they have to do you know remote games or you know, their jobs are interchangeable because they're having to do multiple functions, especially on the production side. And um, I got to know that well at, at ESPN, even though I was studio based. I mean, my colleagues were, you know, traveling. Uh, they were remote production assistants. Mm -hmm. How supportive of your family uh, with your career and, you know, talk to me about your, your the family structure and you know, your family and, and also about relationship building when it comes to your family. I met my wife behind the visitor's bench at an Orlando Magic game. Wow. When I was on the air, I was working for the Magic as a television producer. And on game nights, I was a radio sideline reporter for the Magic Radio Network. Right. I was 23, I think, 22, something like that. And she was a game night operations intern and walked over and asked me, what is that thing you have in your ear, which was my EFB, my earpiece, IFB, my earpiece. And so I joke with her that I was on the air when you met me. So there's no excuses, you know, if I have to go <laughs> travel for work. Uh, and, and I mean, the kids, that's all they've ever known, right? To them, it's not weird to see dad on TV because that's literally all they've ever known. Um, and my son plays golf. He's a, a, a very enthusiastic golfer, as am I. So I used to travel with him. I'd bring him with me quite a bit on the road when it was possible during the summer. Um, my daughter, not so much, but I've taken her to some cool places. You know, we got to go see Niagara Falls because of a golf tournament in Ontario, you know, um, that kind of thing. And uh, they're great. And they're both away at school now. And um, they honestly may have had a little bit of an easier transition to moving out of the house because they were sort of accustomed. You know, they were both on the road. We, we travel a lot as a family. We like to travel. Uh, so I think that's, um, you know, probably helped them a little bit as they get older. And yeah, it's, you know, this, this profession is, is fraught with, uh, with broken marriages, to be quite blunt, you know, that sometimes the travel just becomes too much. And, you know, the family that's on the road becomes more familiar to you than the family that's at home. And um, I'm lucky, I don't 
travel so much that it gets to be like that. And, and when I'm home, I'm home. Like I don't have to go into an office, you know, like there's no um, office hours for us. You're either working or you're not working. And so that makes it a little bit easier, but yeah, that's definitely a challenge for sure. And when you think about the things that, you know, on a separate note, because thankfully you're the statistic or you're part of the statistic where, you know, family stays together and yeah. with the beautiful thing, what makes you the most proud of your job or what brings you the most joy in your job? What's something that in your mind can't be replaced? That's a great question. Um, I still, from the time I was 18 years old and first went to work at that radio station, get a little charge, a little buzz when the red light goes on. And I think the thing that I enjoy the most about the job, honestly, is the three, two, one before we start. And that little, like, there's just an energy. It's a drug. It's really hard to describe, but it's, it's addicting. And once you start doing it, it becomes really hard to not do it. Um, I, I enjoy the preparation. I mean, I, I really like getting ready and, you know, going into a tournament and then you hit some kind of a roadblock where there's a delay in the action, you've got no golf to talk about, that's okay, because I've done three days worth of research before I got here, and I got a whole bunch of stuff right in front of me that I can kill time with if I have to, you know? I like the research aspect of it. Um, and, you know, when, when uh, getting recognized is the wrong word, I don't really care about that, but I, when people tell you that they appreciate what you do, you know, you, that makes you feel good. Like. Um, you know, a lot of people watch golf and golf channel has a niche audience and, and they tend to be very passionate about the game. And, you know, when you're speaking to that audience and you feel like you're actually landing, like you're, they get what you're saying, you're connecting. Um, that's pretty gratifying because that's what you're trying to do, right? Is you're trying to speak their language, trying to let them know, Hey, look, I'm just like you. I play on the weekends. I get mad when I miss three foot putts, you know, I, I get it. Um, and I'm not an ex-player, but I'm a broadcaster that plays. So, you know, that if you can sort of make a connection with, with the audience that way, then that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's great that they appreciate what you do. And again, the way that you're able to, you know, communicate and you're really narrating games and, or, you know, golf tournaments and you're being the voice for them. And because they have, an enthusiasm and appreciation of the game, they're right there with you and they can identify with how you probably, with all your facts and, you know, research that, you know, you've had to accumulate over a period. It, it definitely reflects and shows that's why they appreciate it because they can tell that you're so well informed. I mean, are there any tournament games or tournaments rather where you felt, wow, that was pretty spectacular that I got to cover that. You mentioned the masters. I mean, were there any certain, masters tournaments that you felt like wow that really stuck out i'm so glad that's a part of my career yeah absolutely you know so like i said for years i was up there with westwood one just to do interviews i would interview players before and after the rounds and that was all i did when they moved it to november in 2020 because of the pandemic a lot of the westwood one announcers had conflicts because a lot of them do football during the during the fall and so uh, Westwood asked me to actually come in and do some of the radio play-by-play, -play, uh, you know, for, for certain holes and for certain groups, which I had never done before. Um, and it just coincidentally so happened that the group that I was assigned to for the first couple of days was Dustin Johnson's group. 
And for those that don't follow golf, he went 20 under par. He won it in record fashion. He rent, he won it going away. So I got to call basically all of his golf on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Masters. Now it's a radio broadcast. It's a very different animal from calling it on television. Um, but I mean, that was like, I'm part of history. Like, this is incredible. Like, you know, I'm watching on the big monitors in the media center and I'm calling the putts and I'm calling the shots and he'd make another birdie and there's another birdie. And now he leads by four, he leads by five. Like, how deep is he going to go? This is insane, you know? Um, so that was a lot of fun. That one definitely stands out. That's just recent in memory. And then, you know, most of the other ones are, are um, I've had the chance to call golf at Pebble Beach before. Like it's locations, right. I think, that kind of grab you. California, you know, and, I mean, who doesn't like yeah, California in terms of the know, beauty and the beauty of it? Yeah, the Dominican Republic. You know, it's it, you get right. to go to some pretty cool places. Puerto Rico. I've been to Japan to call a golf tournament on the on the senior tour. So, wow. um, and and that's you know, those are opportunities that that wouldn't have come along if I was, you know, still working for a, an NBA franchise. You know, it's it's it, right. I mean, that's that's kind of. Um, one of the built-in benefits of, of what we do. Yeah, one of my highlights, I would say, as far as golf is concerned, is I got to yeah. meet DJ Singh and, you know, he signed um, my um, ticket to get into the tournament. And where most people were a little bit timid or hesitant, you know, because he was practicing his putting, you know, I'm fearless. So I, I'll walk up to any, you know, notable yeah. public figure in sports um, and, and say hello. And at the time, I had taken a break from being in the communication broadcasting world and I was in real estate brokerage. I was, and I walked up to him and I said, you know, you know, hi, uh, Mr. Singh, you know, really enjoy watching you play and congrats on all your success. You know, would you mind, you know, signing your, you know, the ticket. And he's like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, uh, I'm a, I'm a real estate broker. And he's like, yeah, at figures, you know, you go for the sale you know, because he could tell that I was yeah. confident and that I was, I guess how I said it was I compelling, I'm not sure in a convincing fashion, but where everybody was like, they were looking at me like, wow, did he just walk up to VJ Singh? And I mean, talk about a time where, you know, for that two, three year period, having three major championships and he was like, it was him and Tiger, you know, and Tiger's yeah. early part of his career. And that's what's interesting about golf too, because you know, sometimes it's not a matter of how many majors you win. I mean, people think of Jack at 18, Tiger at 15, you know, you have Arnold Palmer and you have Gary Player and you just have a lot, you know, Phil Mickelson, but no one ever uh, remembers when they came in second, you know, Phil came in second six times. I mean, some of these guys would have more majors just by finishing second, but everybody always thinks about who finished first. And did right. you ever notice that in, in, you know, covering golf? that, you know, the guys who finish maybe second or third should just get as much attention than the guys that finish first, because I mean, you're, you're talking about inches, like they say in the NFL, it's a game of inches. I mean, that's how golf is too. Yeah. And there's a great stat that escapes me at the moment, you know, for all of Nicholas's major championship victories, he finished in the top five, like 20 some, he had 20 something runner up finishes in major championships. Wow. Right. So it could have been uh, a, a much bigger number. Um, sure. You know, you bring up Phil, you bring up Tiger all the top fives, top tens, you know, um, yes, unfortunately, you know, you do remember the winners, um, at, at a much higher clip than you do the guy who finished second, third or fourth. Um, you know, Mickelson, if we're talking golf, just had the misfortune of being in Tiger's era. I mean, that right. was just, you know, if there's no Tiger, I mean, he's the, Phil is the greatest living golfer. If there's no Tiger Woods, 
Right. He just had the misfortune of being born at the wrong time. He's right. six years older than Tiger is, five years older than Tiger sure. is, um, through no fault of his own, right? right. Um, you know, and you know, Nicholas Palmer, Tom Watson were all exactly 10 years apart. You know, right. Palmer was 10 years older than Nicholas. Nicholas was 10 years older than Watson. So while they were sort of grouped together in history, they, they didn't have as many head-to-heads as people think they did, sure. you know? There were notable ones, Tom Watson, Jack Nicholas. Um, in the duel in the sun, you know, that's, that's one thing, but um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I always think that for all the credit he gets and he gets a lot, Mickelson's probably still underrated because you think of Tiger first in this era of professional golf. And would you say that complimentary to the highlights in you covering golf, were you there with, the Orlando Magic when they went to the NBA Finals with Shaq against the Houston Rockets. Talk to me about what that environment was like. Twice. I was there once as a team employee, and I was there once as a broadcaster covering the team in 2009 when Kobe beat us. Right. Uh, The 95 team was, that was incredible. The, the, The rallying cry was, why not us? Why not now? And understand, Shaquille was in his second or third year in the league. Third year, I think. Penny was in his second year in the NBA. Um, he had won the starting point guard job, sending Scott Skiles to the bench. Um, you had Nick Anderson at the peak of his athleticism, Dennis Scott, who was the best three-point shooter in the league, um, and Horace Grant, who they had signed as a came, free agent. And who just came from the Bulls after he won, won the three Bulls. titles. Right. Right. So you could argue that the Magic had one of the top three players at their position at all five positions. Yeah, no. One, two, three, four, five, right? Um, and watching Shaquille in those days, first of all, I say this to everybody who's a basketball junkie. If you hadn't seen Penny Hardaway in his first two or three years in the NBA, you really missed out because he was one of the five best players in the NBA for a very short period of time. He was completely unguardable. He was unguardable. Nobody could nobody could guard him. I kind of feel um, like it was just like similar to like Grant Hill t- status in Detroit at that time you know it was him Grant and or maybe in your opinion he was better than Grant Hill just he did things differently than Grant Hill Grant Hill was a prolific scorer he was a prolific he was a good defender good passer played different positions but I mean Penny was just unstoppable and and Mm -hmm. really the the only thing that ever stopped him was injuries his body didn't hold up over a very long period of time but to answer your question this town was just completely off the rails you know this was our first foray into major league professional sports. Um, it was, it came a lot faster than anybody thought it was going to come, you know, from expansion team in 1989 to the NBA finals in 1995. Six years. Uh, it's the sixth year of the franchise. And, you know, that one ping pong ball with Shaquille changed the entire direction of the franchise. And then he changed it again when he left in 1996, um, right. unfortunately. But yeah, it was, uh, I remember going to Indiana for the Eastern Conference Finals, Reggie Miller, uh, Rick Smith, Dale Davis, Antonio Davis, those teams, they beat us in game six to force a game seven back in Orlando. And downtown Indianapolis, they were celebrating like it was the NBA Finals. I mean, literally people were pouring, were were blocking the streets, celebrating a game six win. Right. That sent it back to Orlando. We came back in game seven and beat them by 30. I mean, just ran them out of the building in game seven, which was one of the most exciting environments I've ever been in was the seventh game of the Eastern Conference Finals 
knowing that the NBA finals were coming up next. Um, yeah, I, I treasure those memories and still have a lot of friends from, from those days of the magic. Right. And, you know, not to, you know, conclude this part of the conversation on a, you know, a down note. On a down will. note. That's okay. It, it's tough because, you know, you think about it was a four game sweep, but some yeah. of those games, I mean, the magic were so close and I just wish that, I just wish that it was, it was different. I feel like the magic, if you had a, a next set of four games, it could have been a lot different. I didn't, I don't, I didn't personally, I didn't think that there was a discrepancy at all. I just think that, yeah, you had Hakeem Olajuwon and you had Mario Ellie and you had Kenny Smith and, you know, you had, you know, significant players on that team, uh, mm -hmm. Robert Ori, but yep. again, you know, when you think about game one, Nick Anderson, I know he missed those free throws, you know, and that's uncharacteristic of him, but I still think that if maybe you had a, a Shaquille Neal that was a little bit older, maybe if Penny was a little bit older, maybe it was a maturity factor. I'm not sure, sure but what, it, what were your, what were your thoughts when you saw that four game sweep from the Rockets? Did you feel like it was a lot closer than people thought? Yes. Uh, they were, they were cooked after they lost the first game because of the way they lost the first game and because it was on their own home floor. Um, yes, you know, Nick, unfortunately, has that handle now attached to him. He's the guy that missed four free throws, any one of which probably would have sealed the game. Sure. Um, you know, uh, and then they get a put back. We go to overtime. Kenny Smith makes a three. Um, if that game, if the Magic win that game, I think the entire series is different. I don't know that we win, but I think the series definitely doesn't, it's going to go to six or seven games because those were two reasonably evenly matched teams to your point, you know? Um, but yes, they were considerably more experienced and more mature than Orlando was. And, um, you know, my regret, my takeaway from that is that we, we thought we'd go back every year. We thought, well, okay, now we're established. Like, this is how it's going to be. We're going to be in the playoffs every year. Sure. And um, Shaquille leaves for LA during the Summer Olympics in 1996. Right. Literally like sitting on a podium with Penny and Penny's finding out for the first time that Shaq is going to El to Los Angeles. And, you know, we went back to the playoffs a couple of years after that, but then it was gone. You know, it was just, you know, Penny couldn't carry the team by himself. His body began to break down. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it was another 10, 12 years until the, the uh, Dwight Howard draft. So I, right. I, I would have liked to, have, I would have liked to have seen and, and Shaq has said this, that he wishes that he and Penny had stayed together a little bit longer. Um, he thinks he could have built a dynasty in Orlando. And he has said publicly, you know, I was young. I always wanted to play in LA. I had the opportunity, but I do think about what if Penny and I had stayed together, so. Do you feel like the Magic are primed, you know, because you saw Dwight Howard, he was able to lead the Magic to the NBA Finals. I think that it's well within the Magic's grasp. I know that if you look at the record today, it definitely doesn't seem that way, but we know that how the magic, you know, turned around when they got Shaq and how the magic turned around when they got Dwight Howard. Do you feel like the magic are just one draft pick away? Someone who's transcending like a Dwight, like a Shaq to turn it around because, you know, I went to university of North Carolina and I'm so happy that Cole Anthony is on this team. You know, yeah. Greg, it's Greg Anthony's son. I, I met Greg Anthony many years ago. Do you feel like the magic are, maybe a one draft pick away for having similar success. I think, I mean, to the topic of, of, of team building, you know, this, if, if the guys they have now can get healthy 
And if the coaching staff they have now can put in a system that suits their talents, there's a lot of talent on that team. It's just, they're the youngest team in the league. That's, that's the, the challenge. And I mean, Wagner has been a complete home run. I mean, far, far exceeded expectations, uh, even for a guy taken in the first round. But we haven't seen, you know, Isaac hasn't been healthy the entire time he's been in Orlando. Fultz has barely been healthy anytime he's been in Orlando. Um, Bamba has underperformed and everybody knows that, you know, there's just, but, but the pieces are there now. It's can we get them all back and healthy and put something in place? Um, and that's what honestly the franchise is banking on. If you're banking on getting a big draft pick, you're going to wait forever. They're banking on going young, going inexpensive. Let's build a unit, um, that could stay together for a while. You know, their benchmark, at least when I was working there, their benchmark was always San Antonio because San Antonio was a similar sized market right. that had a reputation for keeping their pieces together for a long time. You know, Duncan played there for 20 years or whatever it was. The coaching staff stayed intact. The players stayed intact. The front office stayed intact. The Magic have not been able to do that. There've been a lot of reboots and resets and resets. Right. But I think the goal is to have a cohesive group that does trust each other and trust the system will work and keep it together for a while. Let's see what these guys can do. Right. You know, we knew what the last group could do. They could get to the playoffs. You know, the Vooch, Fournier group, those were good players and they can get you a seventh or eighth seed. And that was all they were gonna do. Okay, well, that wasn't good enough. So they blew that up. Well, let's see what this group can do, but you gotta keep them together for a while. You can't continually reboot the machine, you know? Right, and when you think about, you saw one example of relationship building or maybe lack thereof because Shaq at the time he moved on from Orlando and whatever yeah. could have worked didn't work at the time he moved on talk about Penny his injuries then I remember a report that there was a possibility and I don't know how what the validity of this is and maybe you would remember Tim Duncan thinking about maybe yeah, coming yeah. to Orlando then you'd have Tim Duncan Grant Hill and maybe a Tracy McGrady but maybe you could, you know, add some of the pieces to that, that story. How close was Tim Duncan probably leaving San Antonio to go to Orlando? That was very real. Um, yeah, that was the goal was they were trying to, to hit another home run. They wanted to bring in Duncan, Hill, and McGrady, all of them together at the same time. Um, I know that, that they talked to Duncan. I don't know how serious he was. He may have been using the Orlando dalliance as a way of getting some leverage for a contract negotiation with San Antonio. Um, but that was absolutely real. And um, they did get McGrady and Hill at the same time. But as has been pointed out, you know, Grant Hill was on crutches when he got here. I know. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, a brilliant career was cut short by a devastating injury. I mean, he could have lost a leg, you know, at one point sure. and, and was able to play, you know, afterwards. And, and then, you know, and McGrady carried that team for a couple of years. McGrady it was great won a to couple see of story two, titles. It, yeah. yeah, it was great to see that. It was I mean, great he, to see he, that. It was an absolute home run for him. I mean, that, you know, he's going to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame because of what he did in Orlando, because that's when he kind of blossomed as a player and, and sure. everybody realized he can, he can carry a franchise. Um, but he was supposed to have help. <laughs> it was supposed sure. to be uh, Grant Hill and it was supposed to be uh, Duncan, but that uh, just didn't come to be. Yeah. And, you know, but I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, nothing lasts forever in this, obviously, you know, there are a lot of things that don't last forever, but in terms of the success of the magic, I, I do see that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel and you're right. As long as they stay 
you know, together and be a cohesive unit and build relationships together with the coaching staff and growing these young players talents. I think that they're going to be fine because we've seen in any sport that you could have a one year difference just by getting the right ingredients of, of talent and discipline and execution and, and all of those things. And same thing when I think with golf, I know it's more of an individual sport, but you've probably seen it with golf too. It's, you know, you can have an individual, you know, golfer and maybe it's the right caddy or maybe it's you know fine-tuning the mechanics or maybe you know just getting in the right headspace and I'm sure you're familiar with that. Caddies, coaches, sports psychologists, um, managers, uh, your your physio guy, your trainer. I mean there's a number of people. It is a very individual sport. At the end of the day nobody swings the club except the pro. Um, But the the group around the golfer um, can have a huge impact. It can be a very important um, sort of set of uh, a support system is the phrase I'm looking for. And, and you do have to trust those people. I mean, it, especially if you're listening to a coach who's trying to convince you to change something you're doing, you know, a golfer hitting a golf ball, that's his living. That's literally how he makes his living. Sure. And if, if you're going to alter that, well, you better trust the guy who's telling you to change it, you know? And it, I mean, you have to make the decision yourself, but if you're doing it based on advice, yeah, you better trust him, you know? And, and the caddy is the same way. If he tells you, you need one more, you know, trust me, it's, it's playing long. Um, yeah, that relationship, those are, those are like marriages. I mean, you really have to trust the person that's standing next to you, even though he's not the one hitting the shot, you better trust him. Which golfers, uh, as we conclude our, our, um, podcast interview which golfers should we be looking out for over the next year three years five years who are who are the big names in your estimation who do you think has the longevity to really make a splash well as we as we recorded this uh the waste management phoenix open just concluded and sahith Bagala, this 24 year old kid uh out of pepperdine who won himself a legion of fans over the last four days he condended down to the the 71st hole he was um, knocked himself out of it on the 17th hole on Sunday. Uh, but before, before that, demonstrated remarkable poise for a guy that didn't have any status on any tour at the beginning of this year. Um, I, I can't wait to see how his career uh, develops. And the kid, I, they're all kids to me, the young man that won the tournament, Scotty Scheffler. This has been uh, much promised. You know, this is a, a young man that made a Ryder Cup team without having a win on the PGA Tour, which is really saying something about his talent and how much his peers think of him. Um, and he finally got that first win in Phoenix. So that was a, a really um, impressive weekend for both of those players. Um, but those are two that immediately jumped to mind. And Sam Ryder, there's a bunch of guys that are sort of- He got know, the hole in one on the 16th hole. And lying in the weeds. He is. He went to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he went to Bishop, Bishop Moore, Moore, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the fun part, isn't it? Is trying to figure out who's going to be next. And that's uh, something we love about this job. Well, thanks so much, Whit, for being with me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building and team environment. I really enjoyed the conversation. Any final words about relationship building and what it means to you and how it could impact the audience as they go forward beyond this podcast? I'll, I'll circle back to where I started, and, and that is really, it's been, it's been stressed to me and taught to me over the years, the importance of just paying attention. Just keep your eyes open and keep your ears open and pay attention to what people are expecting, needing, craving, um, and that goes miles. 
in terms of building relationships. Thank you. Thank you so much. I totally agree. It's all about listening and it's all about hearing and it's all about applying what you're being told and right. interpreting that and being able to be a better uh, individual or professional for that. And I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Whit. Greatly appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and look forward to staying in touch and we'll okay. talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you, Whit. Take care.